Chapter 9 of The Boy Scouts on Lost Trail by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 A Midnight Scare. The four bunks were arranged two on each side, one above another, in the same way as in a sleeping car. As there were five in the patrol, it was self evident that someone must bunk on the floor, and there was a good natured argument about who it should be. Pat settled the matter by calmly rolling up in his blanket on the pile of balsam which had been spread at the rear of the cabin. Limpton took the upper bunk on one side, with Spud in the lower bunk under him. Hal took the other upper, leaving the lower for Walter. Sleep comes quickly in the woods. The boys were tired with that splendid, healthy fatigue that comes from active exercise out of doors, and the good nights were hardly said before all five were plunged in the deep, dreamless sleep of vigorous youth and save for the faint flicker of the dying embers in the fireplace the interior of the little cabin was wrapped in darkness with a final effort the last ember flared up flickered for an instant and went out save for the measured breathing of the sleepers there was nothing to denote that the cabin was not as lonely and deserted as was its wont walter had been asleep some hours when without apparent cause he awoke for a few minutes he lay in that condition of comfortable drowsiness which is the borderland of sleep and wakefulness he was conscious of a half-defined feeling that something had wakened him but his senses were not sufficiently aroused to produce more than a vague wonder as to what it could have been he could see a star twinkling down at him through a hole in the roof the mingled scent of fresh balsam and wood smoke filled his nostrils pleasantly from outside came faint sounds scarcely distinguishable the voices of the wilderness night a rabbit thumped somewhere beyond the faint patch of lesser darkness which he knew to be the doorway and was answered by a thump from the rear a stick snapped sharply followed by a scurry of little feet as the rabbit sought safety from some unseen danger he had listened to such sounds many times before and in them found one of the great charms of living in the open the mystery of throbbing life on all sides unseen but ever-present presently he became aware of a rustling and a sound as of claws it seemed close at hand and as if inside rather than outside the cabin his senses more alert now he realized that this was what had roused him and furthermore that the sounds proceeded from under his bed which was not more than two feet above the floor thinking it some small animal who had become over inquisitive and not wishing to disturb the others Walter reached down quickly with one hand, intending to get a moccasin and hurl it under the bunk to drive the intruder out. A second later a wild yell electrified the sleepers into sudden and disastrous action. Spud, forgetting where he was, sat up abruptly, or rather started to, but banged his head against the bunk above so hard that he fell back dazed for the time being. Hal, wakened from sound sleep and still confused, attempted to leap from his bunk before freeing himself wholly from his blanket with the result that he pitched headlong to the floor and emitted a yell second only to the one that had roused the camp. Pat had leapt to his feet at the first yell, and thinking that they had been attacked by thieves with a roar of, Leave me at him! lunged toward a form he could dimly see framed against the doorway, and which happened to be Plimpton, who had landed on the floor without mishap and was trying to get his scattered wits together. It was lucky for him that Pat tripped over Hal and came heavily to the floor, where he promptly grappled with Hal until recognizing that unfortunate's voice, he desisted from his efforts to cram a corner of the blanket down his throat. 
By this time Walter succeeded in making himself heard. "'It's all right, Pat. There's nobody here,' he shouted. "'And what in the name of Mud is all the trouble about?' roared Pat, releasing Hal and struggling to his feet. "'Where be the matches? Somebody strike a light!' This Plimpton succeeded in doing just as Pat spoke, and a second later found and lighted a candle. It was a weird scene that was presented in a dim light. Pat, standing in his underclothes, his fists clenched and his eyes still blazing with the light of battle, Hal sprawled on the floor, his expression one of mingled anger and pain. Walter, sitting on the edge of his bunk, holding his right wrist tightly in his left hand, and with his face drawn with pain, Spud just crawling from his bunk, muttering unintelligible threats while one hand was pressed to his head. Plimpton holding aloft the candle and gazing stupidly at the others. "'What does it mean? In the name of the seven saints, tell me, what does it mean?' roared Pat again. "'Something bit me in the hand and I hollered, that's all,' replied Walter with a feeble attempt at a grin. "'And it bit me, and by jingo it hurts like sixty every time I move,' added Hal." Walter now advanced where the light fell full on the wounded hand, and for a full minute all stared at it dumbly while there slowly dawned a realization of what had been the cause of their fright and resulting mishaps. Pat was the first to find his tongue. A quill, Peg! A whole patrol of brave scouts scared out of their senses, and me one of them by a quill, Peg! he muttered, wonder and disgust mingling in his voice. It was true. There in the outstretched hand were a full dozen of the barbed quills of a porcupine. Evidently he had just come out from under the bunk as Walter reached for the moccasin, and the boy had thrust his hand against the ever-ready needle-pointed quills. The sudden pain and fright had led him to think that he had been bitten. Pat at once assumed charge. More candles were lighted, and while Walter winced with pain, Pat, with a deft twist, the result of experience, extracted the wicked little barbs. They had penetrated deeply, and it was necessary to take the utmost care not to break them off, leaving the barbs in the flesh. In such a case, serious results might ensue. The quill of a porcupine is so constructed that once it has penetrated the flesh, it continually works its way deeper. For this reason, the sooner it is extracted, the better. At last they were all out, the wounded hand disinfected and bandaged, and Pat was ready for another victim. Next, he called. Step right this way if you consult Dr. Malone. Four quills were found protruding from Hal's thigh. In his fall he had brushed against the porcupine, the quills catching his underwear and then penetrating the flesh as he rolled on the floor. Spud, meanwhile, had been giving himself first aid, bathing his forehead with cold water. He had received a nasty bump and it was already beginning to swell and show discoloration. A piece of raw lean meat would keep that from discoloring, but we haven't got it. "'I guess you'll be a butte by tomorrow,' said Walter as he examined the bump. "'I have it,' exclaimed Pat. "'Sure it is old Dr. Malone that will cure yous or kill yous, whichever be the easiest. "'And this time tis a cure, I be thinking.' With this Pat disappeared, but in a few minutes returned with a strip of raw meat cut from the flank of the rabbit which they had not yet cooked. "'I have heard of wearing a rabbit's foot for luck, but this is the first time, Begara, I have ever heard of rabbit leg for the headache.' But twas raw meat you wanted, and lean, and this is both, so it ought to do the trick, commented Pat as it was bound in place over the bruise. Then he stood off and surveyed the three discomfited victims and began to laugh, and presently, as a sense of the ridiculousness of the whole affair took possession of them, the rest joined until the cabin rang with their shouts. 
to think of it, not a quill pig, the stupidest beast that pokes his nose in where he has no business, could have done all this in one call, gasped Pat. Tis myself that takes me hat off to the next one I mate. I wonder now where the little beast went to. Tis a fine tale he is like to be telling his friends this very minute. Al picked up one of the candles and began to search the cabin, looking under the bunks and in all the corners. "'You don't expect to find him inside after all that rumpus, do you, Al?' laughed Plimpton. "'I'm not taking any chances,' replied Hal. "'I've had all I want of prickly porky for one night.' "'Hello, what's that shining up there?' he pointed to a rafter in the darkest corner of the cabin. "'Tis the eyes of something.' "'And as sure as my name be Pat, I believe tis the beast himself,' exclaimed the corporal, reaching for another candle and holding it aloft. Sure enough, there sat the cause of the fright, apparently not in the least concerned. Spud reached for his rifle. "'Here's where you pay for all this, you brute,' he growled as he slipped in the cartridge. But before he could shoot, Pat's big hand closed on the barrel of the rifle. "'Forget it, my son,' he said. "'Twas not the fault of the beast.' What did he do but walk in where he has been free to come as often as he pleased? To his way of thinking, tis ourselves be intruding, not he. And he's not far from right in that thought. Tis not yourself would be taking the life of a harmless creature for revenge, is it? Did you say harmless? asked Walter. Pat grinned. Did he do it? he demanded. The evidence is that you did it yourself. Would you put blame on the fire that burned the one that sat down on it? We'll just chase the beast out, and I'm thinking it is himself who'd be glad to take French leave, do we but give him the chance. Give him a clear road, and I'll be starting him along it. There was no need to make a second request for a clear way for the quill pig, for the lone wolves had suddenly become possessed of a wholesome respect for the prickly little animal. They promptly stowed themselves in the bunks, while with a stick Pat prodded the protesting porcupine, grunted and squeaked and clashed his big teeth, Finally he fell heavily to the floor, and then with his quills all on end, scuttled for the door and disappeared. "'Look out for loose quills on the floor that yous don't get em in the feet of yous,' warned Pat, and the advice was timely, for a number of quills were found on the floor lying in wait for unwary bare feet. The bunks were soon restored to order, and once more the patrol turned in. "'Say, Mr. Leader,' shouted Spud with an audible chuckle, "'Of course, all this goes down in the records.' "'I think I'll revoke my order so far as this is concerned,' replied Walter. "'You can't,' chortled Spud. "'You made it irrevocable.' "'Well, I said in the haps, mishaps, and events day by day, and this happened in the night, and that lets me out,' retorted Upton. "'Not on your tin-type,' was Spud's prompt reply. A day consists of twenty-four hours, according to the dictionary, and you can't go back of that. Oh, this goes in the records all right, all right. I told you we'd get something on you. Chuckling happily, Spud rolled over, and presently the cabin was silent, save for the measured breathing of the sleepers. The sun was streaming in at the door when they awoke, for they had made up for their broken rest, that is, all but Pat, who, from the force of habit, was up with the sun, he had the cereal cooked and the bacon and potatoes, the latter having been put to soak the night before, ready for the frying pan when the others appeared, but not so badly off for their experience of the night as might have been expected. Walter's hand was, of course, very sore, 
but Hal asserted that he felt as good as ever, so long as he didn't have to sit down, and Spud was as cheerful as if bumped heads and sore feet were the regulation thing. There was a good-sized lump on his forehead, but it showed no further discoloration. Whether or not due to the rabbit poultice, no one could say. In the bright morning light the hollow appeared less gloomy, though no less wild. In fact, it seemed an ideal place for a week's camp, and everyone was in high spirits. It was decided that the day should be spent in making the camp as comfortable as possible. Pat volunteered to patch the roof of the cabin with big sheets of birch bark, and to cut a supply of logs and firewood if the others would help bring it in. This was agreed to, and he at once started for the grove of big birches not far distant, Plimpton going with him as assistant. The others busied themselves in further cleaning of the inside of the cabin, clearing away the litter around the outside, cleaning out the spring which had been found a few feet to one side, making a substantial camp range with pot hooks of varying lengths and doing other odd jobs that would add to the comfort of all. One of the first things done was to float the patrol banner from a pole nailed to the cabin roof. Pat had no difficulty in finding trees to suit him. Selecting a giant paper birch with smooth, flawless trunk, he made a cut through the bark to the sapwood for about a third of the way around the trunk near the base. Then reaching as far up as he could, he made a parallel cut. He then connected these cuts at the ends by vertical cuts, afterward making another vertical cut from the middle of the upper cross cut to the middle of the lower. Making a spud or barking tool by the simple process of whittling the end of a small sapling to a wedge, he loosened one edge of the bark, and then by means of the spud gently worked the entire piece loose without breaking it. This gave him a strip of bark six feet long by a foot wide. In the same way he stripped off the second panel. Then he moved on to another tree. Plimpton had watched with interest and in silence until Pat moved along. Then he was moved to ask a question. "'I've read how this thing is done,' said he. "'But I understood that the usual way is to circle the tree all the way around, top and bottom, and then make one cut between the two and strip off the bark in one big sheet. "'Why don't you do it that way? "'You could get more bark without spoiling so many trees.' "'Pat looked up at the towering birch. "'There was a softness in the blue eyes such as Plimpton had never noticed before. "'It is a grand tree, is it not?' he asked. "'The younger boy nodded.' "'And twould be a pity to kill it, do you not think?' "'Again Plimpton nodded. "'Well, there you have the reason,' said Pat. "'If I completely girdled it, the tree would die. "'The sap could not run. "'But by taking the bark from about a third of the way around, "'I have not harmed it, save to spoil the good looks of it, "'and not even the need of the bark would have tempted me to do that "'were the tree where any but a few hunters would see it.' "'I be thinking it be as sinful and unbecoming of the honour of a true sportsman "'to kill a grand tree without need "'as to waste the life of another of God's creatures.' "'You're right,' exclaimed Plimpton heartily. "'I never had thought of it in just that way, but it's true. "'And I hate to see these great ugly yellow scars. "'Don't you think we can get along without any more, Pat?' "'One more tree will do it,' replied the young woodsman. "'and there's one over beyond that will be hidden by that young hemlock.' "'When they reached the cabin, they found that Spud was awaiting them with some impatience. "'During their absence, he had made the frame for a table. "'He had driven two stout forked sticks into the ground about three feet apart, 
and so that the forks were three feet from the ground parallel to these and six feet distance he had driven similar sticks and then connected the two pairs by laying straight smooth stout saplings in the forks now he wanted but a covering to make his table complete primitive but serviceable and convenient the bark was just what he needed and he howled long and loud when pat would not let him have it until the repairs on the cabin roof were completed these were done by laying the strips of bark overlapping alternately convex and concave side up and then putting logs on them to hold them in place to spud's disgust pat used all the bark he had brought but his spirits were restored on pat's promise to get enough more for his purpose this did not take long and when it was tacked in place with the brads which spud produced from his ditty bag the table was pronounced a great success the afternoon was spent by all hands in cutting and hauling in firewood walter's sore hand prevented him doing what he considered his share but the others insisted that as leader he was not supposed to do the heavy work and he finally desisted and devoted his time to laying out plans for the remainder of their stay in smuggler's hollow and the search for lost trail which would really begin there it was agreed that one of the first things to be done was to lay in a supply of meat to spud's huge delight he was detailed to go out with pat the next morning in quest of a deer if they failed to get one hal was to have the next chance and then plimpton i'm sorry for you fellows truly i am because i'm going to get that buck tomorrow chortled spud as they turned in early that the hunters might have a good night's rest and be ready to start at daylight going to wear your new shoes asked plimpton innocently and spud relapsed into silence End of chapter 9